Industry Talks is here to bring you the best and brightest in the aviation industry. We will be speaking with industry experts on a wide range of topics, from career successes to career changes. The aviation industry is on the rise, and we're here to help you navigate through these unexpected times. Whether you are entering or re-entering the workforce, this is the pilot podcast that you've been asking for. Today's podcast is a recorded live event I did in April 2021 with Captain Sandy Banu at the time was Director of Flight Operations of South African ACMR Operator Global Airways. That name sounds familiar. Global has been in both national and international news for partnering with former Kalula co-founder and Commerce CEO Gernon Novik and former Uber executive Jonathan Ochi finding low-cost carrier Lyft Airlines in December 2020. Global made news again in July of 2021 when it was announced as part of the Takatsu Consortium, a joint venture between Harris General Partners and Global Airways as interested parties in purchasing a 51% stake in South African flag carrier South African Airways. Sandy has had over 39 years of experience in the industry and from 1991 to 2019 he worked for SA in addition to his duties as a pilot for the roles of Chief Pilot and Director of Flight Operations at various stages. Thereafter, he joined Global's Director of Flight Operations in October of 2018, and in August of this year, Sandy moved into his new role as Chief Operating Officer of Global Airways. In this interview, he shares his thoughts around what an operator expects from new hires, how the aviation industry and pilots will need to adapt to a post-COVID world, and shares some of the successes of the Junior First Officer Program. Let's start off with why are we here? What an operator is looking for uh, in a pilot? So let's start off with the experience requirements. So often people apply to positions, we come up against the dreaded minimum hour requirement. How does an operator such as Global determine those minimum experience requirements? Yeah, it's um, once again, you're always looking at finding a sweet spot between uh, finance and um, and the goal of the company. So many times minimum requirements are defined by the ability that if you set the requirement bar or the requirement level at a particular uh, 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 height, you'll find that you have less input or less requirement for advanced training. So um, if I set my requirement for a direct entry first officer at two and a half thousand hours, I've got a fairly refined product and really very little need for ab initio training, for polishing uh, up on CRM, et cetera, et cetera. The lower I set the bar, the bigger my training job. So I think that's one of the main determinants in terms of, um, of, of where you set your requirement. And unfortunately, in the industry, as you know now, the industry is so devastated that many operators could well set you know, you could say uh, uh, my bar now for a, a direct entry first officer onto an Airbus A320 is 10,000 total hours, 5,000 on top. I can get guys applying. So that's what that's what the change in the industry has done now. What we did, though, is we looked at it um, and, and in, uh, look, everything's about safety in the, in the airline industry. But we looked at it and um, you have to look at finances. So in consultation with a number of uh, 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 relevant players in the industry, including PTC, which is uh, emblazoned upon your top there, 
we um, we designed and came up with a project called the Junior First Officer Program, um, which I think is the first of its kind in South Africa, where we're actually bringing in youngsters, and I'll use the word youngsters, with uh, less than a thousand hours total time, quite a lot less at times, and putting them through a very structured training environment into the right-hand seat of a Part 121 commercial airline, Airbus AT20. So, yeah, I think that should answer the question. Uh, direct entry requirements are basically set primarily by how much effort you want to put in to producing a final product. Okay, well, let's touch on, you, you've mentioned the, the Junior First Officer Program. Like you said, there's the first of its kind in terms of, of an initiative uh, within the country. Uh, what was the main motivation behind implementing the Junior First Officer Program and why is it so beneficial to Global? Yeah, so um, I'd love to tell you that it's because we wanted to give back to the industry and uh, we were being totally altruistic and we wanted to give people a leg up, which we do, obviously. But you've always, in, in the private sector, you've got to balance everything with finance. So I'd be lying to you if I didn't say to you, we as Global reap massive benefits from this, uh, uh, from this program, basically in two ways. So the first way is I'm getting, when I say I am talking about global and uh, our training department, et cetera, and we've got a highly advanced and developed training department, which I'm very, very proud of. We're getting a blank piece of paper with this young junior first officer. He hasn't been in another operator, perhaps on the same type or on a similar type, developed shortcuts, developed walkarounds. This is a guy or a girl who's just soaking up knowledge and you can create that pilot um, in, in the image of the company. You can culturally assimilate that candidate very easily because it's their first big job, that blank piece of paper. So that's very, very handy. The second thing is we do benefit out of this. Remember our uh, um, junior first officer program, firstly, is self-funded. We can come back to that just now. It is self-funded by the candidate for the type rating. Uh, with, with on passing the type rating, a guaranteed job offer afterwards. Um, the junior first officer is paid at a slightly lower notch until they become a first officer where they normalize, and that's generally at about the the 12-month um, to 18-month um, mark. And um, and that's obviously helps, helps, helps our payroll. Uh, now, the fact that it's self-funded creates a little bit of uh, – creates an element – where ethics come into it. So yeah. you asking this candidate, this young guy, this young girl, to or young woman, young man, to commit themselves to a loan or maybe to uh, speaking nicely to their parents or a, a, a relative or something. So you've got to be very careful in the selection process here that you do not set somebody up for failure and send them down the road with no job, no type rating, and a loan from the bank for a lot of money. That's just unethical. So uh, what we've done is in consultation with you guys is there's a stepped payment plan, um, et cetera, et cetera, that, that uh, at, at, at stepping stones along the way, the payments come through. But more importantly than that is that selection process, Dan. You've got to have a good candidate from the beginning. And I think I know what your next question is going to be. <laughs> well, how does one determine what are you looking for in terms of a junior first officer? 
uh, candidate. You know, it's a guy that not, doesn't necessarily meet the well, won't meet the experience requirements for a uh, direct entry first officer. Um, we understand the benefits to that. It's a self-funded program. How do you determine that this is the right individual for your operation? Okay, so there, there's many aspects to a selection process. But any in the, anywhere in the world, I think you, you, you'll see that any selection process after a candidate's been shortlisted is divided up into three aspects. It's divided up, up into some or other form of interview, which takes... Uh, it takes the. It might take place as a HR interview and a technical interview. It might take place as a an interview with the chief pilot and a technical little exam. That'll always be one phase. Another phase will always be a simulated check ride. And in a simulated check ride, obviously taking into account that the candidate we're looking at may well have flown a Cessna, a, a, a Cessna 210, and we putting the person on an A320. You're not looking to see an ACR. You're looking to see somebody. Do you know what the concept of dynamic assessment is? So, so dynamic assessment is where you take, you, you watch somebody perform, doing a strange task. You brief them on how to improve that performance and then look at the, the, the improvement. And that level of improvement shows you how quickly somebody can assimilate. So that will be the simulated check ride. And the third phase is generally some or other form of PPI, personality profile, inventory, et cetera, et cetera. That is pretty much standard worldwide with variations on that. So what are we looking for for a junior first officer? Um, for me, one of the big things, because it's a steep learning curve for these, uh, these guys, and I speak of guys in the generic term, I'm looking for often people who come from a structured training environment. That's quite important. Even if the guy's flying charter on a 210, uh, flying um, a, a caravans um, in Maun, uh, whatever, that, the type doesn't count. It's really the training environment that they've come from. And that training environment, if they've come from a structured training environment, which is competency-based, utilizes EBT, etc., then they can do anything. So that helps a lot. And the dreaded uh, uh, um, uh, uh, ability, uh, a very wise um, training captain, which you and I chatted about the other, uh, the other day, and a very senior pilot at SAA when I first started going into management um, and sat on a selection board, always said at that stage, South African Airways flew around the bulge through Ile de Sol, which is off the, off the coast of Senegal, um, because we weren't allowed to fly over Africa. So we used to spend a lot of time at Ile de Sol, which was a pretty barren island with very little to do there except sit on the beach and drink beer. And he said his methodology of looking at the personality with, with, uh, of somebody was saying, can I spend five days on Sol Island with this guy? Not become his friend, but can I spend five days on Sol Island with this guy without killing him or him killing me? That's it's a pretty good thumbsack, and um, so so we're looking for somebody who's adaptable, sure. Um, somebody who can fit into any environment because our environment at global is very fluid. Um, you know, we, we operate all over the world. We're looking for somebody who preferably comes from a structured training environment, and the discussion we had yesterday, which I was referring to, is the discussion of, of passion is passion necessary? Um, 
it's nice to have. It's really nice to have. I don't think it necessarily makes a guy a better operator, etc., uh, etc. Et what? Where, who? Passion. Who, passion really helps the individual themselves more than it helps me, because what 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 it helps is that person get through the hard times, get through the bad times. What it gives me is the ability to totally abuse the guy, because uh, he's going to be the guy that'll do the extra flying. He's going to be the guy who's going to always be around if there's a flight or push the envelope. And and as I said to you yesterday, you often find, not always, but you often find guys, those are the guys that end up somehow or other in sort of leadership positions within an airline environment. So, yeah, structured training environment must be adaptable. And uh, passion does help, but it'll help you more than it'll help me. Well, we're very, very grateful to have you back with us. Um, so we were touching on uh, competency-based training and assessment versus experience. Um, let's touch on experience. Now, there are a lot of different ways one can go about the industry in terms of gaining experience, either the instruction, or the instruction route or the charter route. How does the type of experience one, one has gained throughout the career uh, impact or influence the decision we're considering a potential hire? Yeah, it's, it's, are you talking about a potential hire of a direct entry or of a junior first officer? Uh, either. Let's go with the uh, junior first officer. Yeah, very little, uh, very little impact at all because obviously with a junior first officer, we are swimming in the pool there of guys who are probably in the initial phases of their, of their flying career. So many of them have got charter jobs flying banknotes around in Cessna 210s or might have been lucky enough to get jobs up in the swamps, et cetera, et cetera. So I have no we, – we, we, you can't be picky there. You can't say, okay, we want a junior first officer, and we also want him to have 2,000 hours multi-crew experience and uh, 500 hours turbine experience. It's, it, it's not fair. A direct entry guy, it, 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 it's often very – Looking at a guy's logbook can often give away a lot of lot of information. Um, so if a guy is sitting at two and a half, three thousand hours, and he's still in the small charter market, you need to ask him why. Maybe it was a choice. I don't know. Um, maybe he's now decided, or she's now decided to take the step up. But I think um, a direct entry first officer, you don't want to spend tons of time teaching the person a part 121 operation. You really want somebody that's come from a part 121 operation, perhaps a part 135 operation. Um, a JFO, really, I, I understand where the guys are at that stage of their, of their careers, and there's no penalty for not doing anything there. The whole instruction thing, Dan, it's a good question. I'm not an instructor. Let's go back to, so we've spoken about the JFO, we've spoken about competencies, uh, what you're looking for in a junior first officer. Now, where the rubber hits the road, the line training phase yep. of the program. Now, the junior first officer is generally coming from a structured training environment, uh, such as a PTC or a PTC. Do you notice any significant difference between junior first officer and say non-type raise would be qualified first officer once they hit the line phase? Yeah, so, uh, it's actually a very, very valid question. And this is where your investment as an operator goes in. It actually goes into that line training phase. So um, we get the product um, from you. 
um, with, a, with a type rating and absolutely no exposure to the aeroplane at all. We then obviously, in terms of regulations, that candidate has to then do four takeoffs and landings to a satisfactory level with a training captain and then can be, re be released for line training. There's many terms for line training, LIFAS, line in dock, whatever you want to call it. So with the junior first officer uh, candidates, that is far more extensive. We have more sectors involved um, and the program is more intense because uh, of the background the candidate's coming from, because that is really where the rubber hits the road. That's why the selection process is so important because your structured environment at PTC through the system is very good. The candidate knows where they are and what to prepare for for the next session, the next classroom, et cetera, et cetera. Now, generally, our young guys go into Europe. That's where we're operating. In an A320, with ours, his first flight, his first landing might be in Brussels. Um, wow. So, yeah, so it, it's a huge step up for them. And man, these guys cope, eh? They, 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 because they're so invested in the uh, in the program and in the plan, but they struggle. You know, you, you can definitely see through the line training phase the the the, 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 the traditional stop start hiccup of how the learning curve goes like that, then flattens, and they've just had too much information, and then they they feel they're regressing, and then it picks up again and it flattens. So it's quite exciting, and it's very difficult for everybody involved but it's a it's, it's a lot of fun and strangely enough it's not the the, the area where we fight, have the most problem with the junior first officer program believe it or not and it sounds very trivial it's with radio radio work radio telephony procedures and it sounds so trivial i know but now you've got a guy who's been flying out of swak up in a 210 impressive his mates with sounding like Tom Cruise on base leg and um, talking too much, not knowing when not to talk, when to talk, when to confirm a clearance, when is a clearance a clearance and not a clearance, and uh, a proper verbalization, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're operating in an environment which is, has a high traffic load, many different accents, many different languages, you have to be precise, short, know what you're saying. So strange enough, that's the area where we have to do the most work. The flying... I've actually been pleasantly surprised with, with all that. I, I, you know, I've gone, and, and let's face it, our model there, uh, you, you can go to sleep tonight, and you know tomorrow morning you're flying from Oradea, uh, from Antalya in Turkey, to Oradea in Romania. I mean, have you ever heard of that place? No. It's the first time you're okay, well, 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 it makes, it makes Bloemfontein look very, very, very big. And then... <laughs> You're going in with this youngster doing a total visual approach, non-nav non, um, aid supported. And the next night, next day at night, I'm flying in, and I've done it, into Amsterdam, which is one of the world's busiest aircraft with the most complex SIDSTAR approach procedures, taxi procedures, parking procedures, noise abasement procedures, you name it. And I'm flying with a kid with 850 hours next to me, and it's absolutely gobsmacked at his or her ability to cope with that, with, with that environment. Obviously, there's got to be input, but that's a, we, we, we have spent too long locked into the whole concept that aviation is a stepping stone and experience is the only determinant of how you get up. So, yeah, right, to get back, I talked too much there. 
to get back to you. Strange enough, the real problem we experienced was radio work. And it was a real problem. It's difficult to, to get quite a few years or a couple of years of bad habits on a radio out of something. Mm. It really is. So if you look at the, the circling back to, to the JFO guys and not necessarily having a lot of experience uh, within industry, not, not necessarily having that exposure to controlled airspace to the level that one expects in Europe, having flown a, a 208 or a 172 doing bank runs, where is it as easy as simply just transitioning onto a type rating or is a certain level of bridging training required to get a person ready for the type rating? Um, I think there's definitely bridging training uh, um, required, yeah. Uh, but that's not for everybody. So I think this has to be looked at on its own merits and looked at, at the candidate to see whether that bridging training is uh, um, is required. In many cases, you talking now about the bridging training, and I, I think if I, if I see where you're going with this, Dan, is the fact that you're now talking about people who have had very little exposure to structured radio work, no exposure to RVSM, no exposure to weather radar, no exposure to traffic collision avoidance. Uh, in terms of that, absolutely. If you can bridge that, so that the candidate's not looking and having to learn that through the type rating, you're giving the candidate one a better chance of uh, succeeding in the type rating, and you're also creating bigger real learning opportunities in the type rating by taking away the mundane stuff that can be taught in a classroom. So, so to answer your question, yes, but I think you should look at the candidate before you determine exact. I think that often should be tailor made. Okay, that makes so operational elements that someone may not have been necessarily exposed to? What what springs to mind when these guys get onto the line, something that they may not have been exposed to? Simple thing. A checklist philosophy. What is a challenge and response checklist? What is an emergency checklist or a non-normal checklist? What is the difference between the two? What is the difference between a challenge and response and a read and do checklist? Those sort of things can be gotten out of the way before you get into this, uh, to the um, aircraft. I don't know, what are you, are you training on the 800 or the 320? 800. So if you have to, having to sit in a session with a candidate, explaining them the difference between a challenge and response and a read and do, you're wasting valuable learning time, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. So it's those things you can get out of the way beforehand. Um, those things that they won't have had seen. Checklist philosophy. The, the difference between the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring and making sure that the pilot monitoring understands that they have to be engaged all the time. Um, in the old days, it was, I think the difference was pilot flying, pilot not flying. Mm -hmm. And in saying pilot not flying, there was a negative there, which implied a non-engagement. Whereas pilot monitoring, monitoring is active. It's positive. So teaching the person who's not actually got feet on the rudders and hand on the stick that they still engaged in the process that's very important as well so i think those are probably two of the big things pfpm checklist philosophy now sandy looking at the like you mentioned you touched on it earlier industry's changed the face industry's changed um 
things aren't going to be the same moving forward into the future. How has the changes that we've seen with COVID previously affected the way one sees uh, an operation should be run? Have you made any significant changes to your operation specifically when it comes to pilot recruitment and training? Yeah. Yeah. Also, a very good um, a very good topic. I'll tell you why. This COVID thing, well, first of all, I mean, two weeks before COVID, we were preparing to put seven airplanes into Turkey. We were recruiting like mad. Um, it was... It was like a turkey dinner. Um, and then it, it all happened in two weeks. And what had actually happened is, so I'm going to expand on this a little bit, is our model, the global model, an ACMR model then, was built around the fact that when we've got the turkey, we eat and feast. And when there's no turkey, we put the airplanes to bed and do a little bit of work here and there. So our crew would generally work hard for seven months a year, and for five months a year, they wouldn't work much at all. They would be recent, and perhaps that's exactly um, uh, that, that's exactly what they would do. They'd fly, uh, you know. That, we would we would have guys flying 120 hours in 30 days, which is the industry. Um, uh, that, that's that's proper, eh? and doing that exactly, but only for seven months of the year. So even though the guys doing that, our guys are barely reaching 700, 600 hours a year because of the dead time. So what happened, I, well, we ended up global and luckily we've got a very, very broad-minded and, and, and lateral thinking owner. We ended up, we got back out of Turkey on the 31st of October, 2019. And we did very little work until COVID hit because we were going into Turkey on 1 April, 2020. And we were going to make a lot of money. We were going to make a lot of money and give a lot of guys jobs, and it all went away. So in the end, we supported a payroll for five months, and that guys didn't work. Now, I feel desperately sorry for the guys who are out of work, but the model has got to change, Dan. No longer can any company go through the situation again whereby they're supporting a massive legacy-style payroll. There's going to be a movement even with legacy carriers, firstly. So I'm talking about recruiting now. There's going to be a movement with legacy carriers, well, not with legacy carriers, with carriers, and I think legacy carriers as well, towards eroding the fixed part of a, a pilot's remuneration, but pushing up the activity side. So in other words, if things do go quiet, the payroll, the fixed payroll is smaller, and when things are busy and there's turkey on the table, everybody's getting a leg because everybody's working, everybody's earning and earning good money. And I think you as a pilot, look, uh, uh, me as a pilot, I've, I've got more time in this industry behind me than I have ahead. But for you guys, I think the whole adaption is going to be quite difficult, but I think the, the environment's going to force it in the fact that I think flight deck crew members, many of, many of flight deck crew members are going to have to start living like squirrels. Earning big, during the good times and squirreling away. So I could say to you, Dan, I like you. I'm going to sign you up for a seven-month contract in Turkey. You're going to earn so many thousand dollars over that period. And if I like you, and when I say like you, I don't mean if I like you. If you perform and you're a good product, 
you first in line for the same contract next year. But there's five months between the two contracts. So you have got to decide what you want to do with those five months. Do you want to do a plumber? Do you want to become a house husband or a housewife? Do you want to open a, uh, have a, have a, open a restaurant? Um, what do you want to do with those five months? Or perhaps I've got another contract that I can offer you, which is not over a summer season, it's over winter season, but it's slightly less remuneration. Because rates that you earn over the summer season in Europe are far higher than the rates over the winter season. And I think, and this is a bit of personal advice for pilots as well going forward, they are going to have to say, if I can afford a house for 10 Rand, I must buy a house for 7 Rand. Because you've got to be a squirrel. You've got to put those nuts away for winter. And then you're going to be happy and succeed in the industry. And I think even legacy carriers going forward, if you think about it, though the whole airline industry goes like this. It's seasonal, isn't it? So generally, summer is high travel. Winter is lower travel. So legacy carriers were carrying, were staffing and equipping up to the peaks. But your peaks only happen twice a year. So during your troughs, you've got too much metal and too many, too, too many staff. So what did they do? One of the ways is you, you create an artificial peak. You, you, you lower prices. So, you, so you've still got the same volume, but your yields go out the window. But you're still paying your staff the same salaries that they had before. So I think even legacy carriers might, might start coming to the party whereby they actually say, you know what? I'm going to staff myself to the troughs and I'm going to bring in capacity for the peaks. I think there's going to be, ACMR was always the redheaded stepchild that lived in the garage. And I think ACMI is going to become quite a larger player in the market. There's airplanes out there, Dan, that have been parked now that are 14 years old, A320s, 73s, whatever, that are 14 years old that have been parked that are never going to fly again. Never. Uh, so I think the, the shake-up in the industry, you're going to see a change in employment model. You're going to see a change in how you're going to have to conduct yourself as a crew member in terms of uh, earning, et cetera, et cetera. But it could be very exciting. A word from our sponsor. Located in the heart of the Sunshine Coast, 43 Air School is Africa's best and busiest flight school, offering you a wide range of aviation courses, from a private pilot license, airline pilot license, aircraft mechanic courses, and so much more. Visit 43 Air School at www.43airschool.com to learn more. Sammy, you've touched on ACMI. Uh, coming more to the forefront, playing a more major part uh, in the industry. We understand Global's got a massively, for want of a better word, global reach operating in Europe. What is an ACMR operator and how does that compare, say, relative to a legacy carrier? Okay, so um, a legacy carrier, and when I say legacy, legacy carriers are generally referred to as the, the traditional national carriers, which many of them aren't national anymore, but they're the big hitters, the Lufthansa's, the BAs. SAA was a legacy carrier, um, the United Airlines, Cathay Pacific's, Qantas's, etc. Beyond that as well, you've also got um, other operators uh, at the second tier who also employ a full payroll. Um, 
What an ACMI is. So ACMI stands for Aircraft Crew Maintenance and Insurance. That means if you come to me as a, as a, 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 a client and you say to me, I want an A320 for four months this year, I give you that A320 for an hourly rate. I supply the aircraft, I supply the crew, I supply the maintenance, and I supply the insurance on that aircraft. All you do is pay me the money. There's no pro you have no problems. You have no staff issues. You have no, uh, and you have no maintenance issues. And generally built into those contracts as well, the client makes very sure that if there's an AOG or something like that, there are penalties that kick in. So it's a mutually beneficial contract. Um, when the going is good, in other words, European summer, etc., then you make good money. But in a European winter, you don't. So as an ACMR operator, you have to be very careful to employ only to the level that you can sustain. So I think, and this is just my opinion, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of those carriers are going to be very wary of uh, gearing up to the top levels. They're going to gear up to a level slightly down, and then they're going to bring in ACMR operators for extra capacity, extra lift, et cetera, when they need it. Makes sense to me. Well, it allows flexibility within the organization. So you're not, yeah. like you said, you're bringing in additional capacity when demand needs it, and therefore, you know, you're keeping your operating costs down as low as possible. Yeah, now, absolutely. We're touching on, again, the market has changed. You mentioned there are a lot of experienced pilots currently on the market looking for work. Um, is that going to stay the same way forever? I don't know. We've seen the forecast from CAE from Boeing saying that there will be a recovery and one of the major um, problems that operators may face returning is uh, a lack of, of qualified pilots. Now, be, being as it, as it may, and the success shown through the Junior First Officer program, is Global would considering continuing that program as a successful program for you? Yeah, uh, okay, so... Uh, I think it's a no-brainer for us. The Junior First Officer Program, once we're in a position again where we're starting to expand, get back to where we should be, the Junior First Officer Program is a vital part of, 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 our, of our business model. It helps us financially. It helps us create a good product that um, is culturally assimilated uh, with Global. And I've built the model around the fact that from the time I get the candidate to start his line training, I see a seven-year cycle. That's how... We built it. Um, that's how I discussed it with um, the owner of the company and with Wayne uh, from PTC. So what I see, it, how I see it is my the, the company's JFO will generally get a command between three to four years if we fly the same rates and the same hours that we were flying previously. So there's no more dead man's shoes. We, we use a rough seniority of I mean, it's unfair not to, but there's no seniority list. Um, so but three to four years, your candidate's getting a command. Once the candidate has got a command, three years, it'll take them another three years to get enough hours to put themselves in line for a A320 command in a Middle East carrier, if we ever get to the same situation again, mm. or an expat type carrier. So I see that in investing into the concept of a junior first officer program, I'm getting a junior first officer, a first officer, and a captain for seven years. 
At the end of that seven-year period, the candidate might stay with us, which we hope they do, but they might not. They might decide to move on, which they're welcome to do as well, because we've all benefit, benefited from the, the process as well. Um, and once the, the program really gets going, once you've got enough impetus, you know, your junior first officers become first officers. And um, now they, they're the experience level. So you no longer need um, to have direct entries. It becomes a self-sustaining program if you're uh, small enough. Maybe not always a good idea to have that because it's always nice to have outside uh, cultural influence to come in and change you up because otherwise you get a bit insular and you, you end up with a closed system and a closed system is never, never necessarily a, a good thing. Because, I mean, if you, as I said earlier, if you go into the market now looking for a first officer, for an A320, you know, you can get a first officer with 14 years of experience, 10,000 hours total time, and 5,000 on time, like that. That's going to change. It, it, it will change, but that's where the industry is sitting now. Okay, so the massive advantage from the JFA then, of course, is longevity in terms of that investment. The, the training is funded by the individual, and so it's a low financial risk, and you get longevity in terms of your, your personnel that's now indoctrinated into the, the cultural ethos of your operation. 100%. Now, not everybody may have, have an opportunity like that at the moment. In fact, there's a lot of pilots uh, sitting on the ground, guys, looking for uh, opportunity to gain experience, to make themselves more marketable, uh, to gain access to the market when it does recover. What can those pilots watching do with this time right now to make themselves more employable or attractive to an operator such as the globe? That's oh, a, a horrible question, Dan, um, to be asked right now. Uh, because because the, the industry is so devastated um, and, and because I saw some figures a day or so again about how many how many CPLs and how many ATPs are actually active in the industry at the moment in South Africa? And it's shocking. Um, I actually got quite a shock when I saw that number. I know it's devastated, but I didn't know it was. But it's going to recover. Um, I, I'm going to be blunt here. I think the first thing you've got to do if you're waiting to get into this industry, you, you cannot hope for a miracle. You've got to look after yourself, both mentally and physically. Make sure you're in a position where you can support yourself and from there stay in the industry. For many people, they'll have to, it may be like going back to when you were at school, going working a stall at an air show, going and hanging around a, 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 a flying school pub and chatting because that's really what it's going to be again. I think the recovery is going to come quite a lot quicker than people think. I do think so. Um, but I think the environment's going to look quite a lot different. So anything you can do at the bottom end of the market in terms of you building up experience, anything. Don't price yourself out of a market. Pick up anything. Take do favors for people. Take an airplane from take an airplane from Paris to to to, to Grand Central um, for nothing. Do that sort of thing. I know it sounds stupid, eh? But there's no silver bullet here, unfortunately. We, we, we pretty much, we're pretty much at the mercy of the third wave and the vaccine rollout. Yeah, but to touch on what you said, just staying involved in the industry, staying around like-minded individual, 
Having a cup of coffee with the guys is a great way to gain kind of knowledge, to, to stay engaged with industry, to, to learn and find out where those opportunities may lie, no matter how scarce they may be. So, Dan, if I've been, if I've got a little business that's still running at an, air, at an airfield, I might have a little charter business there. And suddenly, business picks up. If you've been coming in and having coffee with me and chatting when, in all your spare time, and I suddenly need an extra pilot, you're getting the job, my mate. I know you. You're a known quantity. And in having a cup of coffee with me, I know you have a 210 rating. I know pretty much what you've done. And I've seen you. You've helped me put an aeroplane in and out of the hangar. You've uh, sat and had a cup of coffee with me. You've uh, helped me wash an aeroplane. And in fact, on a couple of days, you said to me, hey, can I come along on that flight with you? So when the break comes, you, I'm going to give you the job. So I think, unfortunately, it's that simplistic at this stage. Just staying engaged and keeping involved. Yeah. Huh? And, and, and looking after yourself. Looking after yourself. Yeah. It's, 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 it's unfortunate now, and it's not only in our industry, it's in many industries that have been devastated by this, and it, it takes a mental toll on you. And you start, it eats at your self-esteem. It um, takes away your self-confidence. Um, you know you've got to be careful that depression doesn't come around, et cetera, et cetera. Keep yourself healthy. Look after yourself and uh, weather the storm because the good times will come. They certainly are coming. May not seem that way now, but uh, we need to be best prepared to ride that wave. They, they will come, but I think a lot of the T's and C's that the pilots get going forward are not going to match what they had in the past. It's going to take a long time to build up to that again. Yeah. Well, let's hope it does. Now, there are a few questions from the floor. If you like uh, just to take one, we've got Yaj over here. Yash says, often during the selection process, candidates are placed in an aircraft type that they've never flown. For example, the A320. I personally know candidates who have failed simulated checks and selections due to this. Is there any way to prepare or be ready for the simulated check in the aircraft that one has never flown? Okay. I think there's actually a bit of a, a backstory to this question. It's actually a good question. So I think candidates who've gone into a simulated check must be very careful about saying they failed a simulated check. Often the, the operator is looking for a defined number of pilots. So I'm going to use our junior first officer program as an example here. If we have a selection board and we've got place for four pilots, the pilot who did fifth best didn't fail. They did fifth best. I know it sounds semantic, but it's actually very important. So that's the first thing you've got to understand is it's not necessarily a fail. There was somebody who achieved better. That's the first thing. The second thing is any operator worth their salt is going to send you the profile. You're going to get the profile and supporting documentation that you're going to need to study up for that simulator check. That's the first thing, uh, the second thing. And the third thing is, I don't want to tell you this, but I turned 63 weeks ago. So if you're still young, I've, there, there is some software out there that you can utilize to just on a little laptop to prep yourself in terms of a cockpit layout a scan, a flow, knowing things are. Don't get bogged down in the detail. 
the person wants to see the person who's assessing the simulator ride doesn't want to see you fly the simulator like an ace they want to see you are aware of what the aircraft is doing you can see it's going wrong you verbalize what's going wrong always verbalize eh? to say i see i'm too fast i see i'm high in the slope i see i'm too slow verbalizes and makes a positive effort to intervene and correct and in making those corrections does the appropriate actions not maybe not correctly so if you are uh, if you are slow i'm sim simplifying it massively here you want to see the person using the uh, 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 controls of the aircraft that make the aircraft accelerate um, you want to see that the candidate understands the environment they're in understands the, sta the state the aircraft is in verbalizes it and attempts to correct it's really that simple so, so some, um, sorry sorry so i'm saying if i understand so if i say it correctly it's just they need to have a good situational awareness as to what the aircraft is doing they're able to recognize any deviation and then actively correct it or even preempt it if possible that's what you're looking for someone is situationally aware 100 uh, percent that, that's exactly what you um what you're looking for and you can also see I, I, and and this is also i mean totally blunt again i can sit there with a young candidate and immediately see who's put in the work and who hasn't. You can see it. And that, there's, there's a lot of subjective bias that goes into anything. And we all humans and we, 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 we suffer from subjective bias. And I'm at the back of my head here, what's in my crocodile brain or whatever. I'm going to see a, a youngster who I can see has worked his or her butt off for this session and may not be going well. But I can see they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they've worked their butt off. Yes, that person's got to get, got, got to, got to get the nod, you know. Mm -hmm. um, above the person that you can see is pitched up there with flaming guns and Top Gun and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. The person's got to get the, the gun. But as you explained it, hundred percent, and and it's very rare that people actually fail the simulator ride. People do less well because there was a defined number of candidates that the operator wanted. Well, that's something, I think that's a common misconception that's just been cleared up. Um, you know, the failing of simulator rights didn't necessarily fail, just you didn't do as well as the guy ahead of you. That didn't necessarily mean that you did poorly. Exactly. Um, I've got a question here from Ati. He says, if ACMI is the future, do low-cost carriers such as SAFIRs have a huge advantage on the rest of the market currently? Okay, so there's two models involved here. So uh, ACMI, I think IT, ACMI has a future. I don't think it's necessarily the future, but ACMI is going to be a bigger player in the market than it was before. So what is Cephe? Cephe is a low-cost model, actually a very good low-cost model. And um, from the outside looking in, I've got to admire Elmar and... Um, and Safir, how they navigated this COVID pandemic, you know, uh, both from internal communications, etc. It's actually been quite, um, quite in, in, inspiring to watch. So, uh, so Safir, so Safir still leases and owns aeroplanes. 
And as long as you're leasing and owning airplanes, you have to fly hours to reduce the cost of the lease rate, the maintenance reserves, etc., etc. ACMI gives you the option, might give Safair the option of not flying leased airplanes. So my my concept is this, and I, I say, let's take Safair out the market. Let's make it airline A, that is Safair. Um, they could bring in in over, over over November, December, and January, like. Kami and Mango used to do, but to a smaller extent, bring in an ACMR operator to give them extra capacity. Uh, could Safe go into the market as an ACMR operator? Yeah, well, Safe could do pretty much anything. So, um, yeah, I, I think for an operator like Safe, and Safe have been in the ACMR market for a long time. You know, I mean, their herb market is basically an ACMR operation, and they had many contracts around the world for cargo, as far as I know, 737 freight operations around the world. I think I'm rambling a bit, Ati, but I, hopefully that's half an answer. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's offered good insight, you know, the, the ACMR the definitely is a future to support various operators that you offer that flexibility, and it's a win-win for, you know, any operator, really, just gives them that flexibility. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking at, uh, there's another question here about, from Ruben. He says, do you see the airline industry recovering substantially after vaccines are widely available? Is it all vaccine dependent in your mm. Yeah, look, um, I'm no politician. Um, but it looks, so, so it looks like, it looks like for the European leisure market, they probably going to require a green passport. They're probably going to, once you have a vaccination, they're going to allow free travel. It seems that it's the way it's going now. Whether that's going to continue, I don't know. But I think the vaccination rollout is is um, is going to be a major player in the industry opening up, particularly in terms of leisure travel. Let's face it, you're not going to pay for a, a 14 day holiday package if you have to spend eight of those days in some other form of quarantine. So you have to be able to go in, start your holiday from day one, finish it to day 14. No, so I think, unfortunately, for the next possibly year to two, we're going to be pretty much dialed into this whole vaccine uh, uh, rollout program. Unfortunate. Well, maybe it's not unfortunate. Um, you know, somebody was telling me something very interesting the other day, saying that because Australia and New Zealand have had such... Um, such low exposure to, to COVID because uh, of the fact that they locked themselves in, etc. It's going to take them a lot longer to get herd immunity than any of us. We've had more exposure, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, uh, Ruben, I think, I think the industry in the short to medium term is pretty much uh, vaccine rollout reliant. Now, Last question, and I just want to touch on, on that again. So vaccines are rolling out. Um, the rate of rollouts is going to be accelerating. It's going to be exponential. The United States is looking looking at vaccinating by uh, the middle of this year and towards the end of the year. Um, and Europe will soon follow. Now, the question is, once this recovery comes, 
what lies next in store for global and how are you positioning yourselves to take advantage of this recovery? Yeah. So actually, I think it's Ruben here, I'm looking on the side, uh, actually made a, a very valid point here, which goes into um, what I'm going to talk about now. He says, yeah, if carriers are moving to more hourly-based pay or, or FDP-based pay, could fatigue become an issue where pilots will be pushed to fly as many hours as they can? Yeah. So the problem that you get when you lower retainer pay uh, or fixed pay and uh, push up activity-based remuneration is you fall into the trap where guys fly, they can't call in ill because they need the money. They can't, they fly when they're stressed, when they're fatigued, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so that is a real issue that you've got to uh, 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 um, get going within the culture of your company. And also we, as individuals, have to start taking ownership of our own lifestyles. We have to say that my lifestyle must be supported by a 10 rand a month lifestyle, which is what I earn in my downtime. It must not be supported by a 20 rand uh, a lifestyle, which I earn in my high time. So Ruben makes a very good point, and it's something that's been seen in the industry before. If you go move away from fixed to more activity-based, you get guys um, uh, uh, who, who loathe to call in sick, loathe to take leave, et cetera, et cetera, because of the money, the money, the money. But we also as individuals have to take responsibility for our own lifestyles and what we need to support our lifestyles. So it's a two-way street. As an operator, I have to look after the guys, but the individual has to start taking ownership of their own lifestyle. How are we positioning ourselves, Dan? Well, diversification, eh? Um, one of the things we did was uh, we went into, into a, a, a joint venture with um, Get On Novik, and we started an airline called Lyft um, to give us a schedule because we, we didn't have a schedule. We had an ACMR, so now we've got a, a schedule to lean again. That airline was started in 90 days. That's why I look like this. I'm 25 years old. It was uh, that airline was started in 90 days. So there's a diversification. We're looking both within South Africa and Southern Africa at opportunities there for scheduled, for scheduled type operations that we can move that we can move into. But we also have. I'm sort of probably at 70 percent of the progress now. And we're busy um, uh, establishing an AOC in Europe as well. Um, so we're well down the path of that to allow us to straddle the whole world, to, to get opportunities everywhere. So our, our uh, EASA AOC, our AOC in Europe is well down the road, and we're hoping we should be, be able to operate off that AOC by 1 June. Wow, that's fantastic. Uh, so definitely... Positioning yourselves for that recovery, diversifying, doing all the right things. I really look forward to seeing Global's growth into the future. I can only imagine there are great things coming. And Sandy, thank you very, very much for giving us some of your precious time. I understand you're very busy, but we really appreciate you joining us on the show and helping out with this initiative. Yeah, I know, Dan. It's great. I think your initiative there at PTC with this is fantastic, man. Well done. And... Um... I hope people gained a bit of uh, bit of insight. Unfortunately, um, yeah, as I said, the, the, right now there's no silver bullets. So just look after yourself, keep your keep yourself interested, and keep yourself healthy and well. 
that's it for our episode with Captain Sandy Baines. You're listening to PTC Industry Talks. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. We'll be bringing you new episodes weekly.